Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels. I'm Rory Kesslin-Jones. The world's problems are interdisciplinary. Why is academic research so siloed? That's the subject of the latest in our podcast collaboration between Cambridge University's Bennett Institute for Public Policy and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. So this episode is a bit meta. I usually say we're going to use the interdisciplinary strengths of both institutions to explore a complex challenge. But this time the challenge is the lack of interdisciplinarity across much of academia. Why is research trapped in silos? What are the merits of an interdisciplinary research approach? And how might we overcome disciplinary divides? To explore these issues today, we have Ingela Alga, the director of the IAST. Ingela, start us off. What does your research focus on? My research is about uh, how our evolutionary past may have shaped various aspects of our lives. And I'm particularly interested in morality and uh, certain uh, family-related behaviors. And I also examine some of the implications of these results for economics. Joining us from the Bennett Institute, we have Flavio Toxfeld. Flavio, remind us of your main research interests. So uh, one of my main areas of research has been the economic study of infectious diseases. And so that's uh, an interdisciplinary field where you use uh, ideas and techniques from economics and optimization uh, to, to inform public policy in the context of pandemics and vaccine rollouts and, and things like that. So it's basically uh, branching out the tools of economics to uh, an otherwise non-economic field. Wonderful. Well, let's, let's crack on and let's start by unpacking the whole premise of this question. Is academic research in fact siloed? Well, Ingela and Flavio, I presume the answer is yes, because otherwise, uh, why the need for the IAST or the Bennett uh, Institute? Ingela, you start us off. Uh, yes, definitely. I totally agree with this. Typically, I mean, most researchers would go through their lives without uh, looking beyond their own disciplines. So there is typically very little communication between disciplines. And I think this makes academic research very much siloed. And was that the, the, the kind of thinking behind the development of the IAST in Toulouse? Indeed, IST was created with the clear objective to remedy this lack of communication between disciplines. And this is what our uh, main uh, objective is. That's your mission. Uh, Flavio, looking back before you joined the Bennett Institute, were you wandering through a world of, of silos? Well, yes, it's a, a solitary uh, existence to be an interdisciplinary researcher. Um, there, there is a whole ecosystem in, in academia and in research that is built around disciplines. And if you find yourself between disciplines or straddling two different disciplines, uh, you just don't benefit from many of, of that in, much of that infrastructure, like conferences, like peers that, that know what you're working on and so forth. So uh, there's very much so that, that there's been uh, you know, clear distinction between disciplines and, and, and it is very difficult to, to try to work between them. Tell us about the Bennett Institute. What is different about its approach? So the Bennett Institute is, is of course, uh, one that is not wed to specific uh, methodologies. It's really about policy and policy impact. And that, of course, frees up researchers from, from adhering to specific methodological approaches to, to, because it really is the answering specific questions and, and making policy recommendations that is the focus. Whereas uh, academic research that is not 
particularly policy-oriented, is perhaps uh, more on, on fixed tracks that are t- determined by the methodology that has grown up around the questions that are being answered. But let's look at the, the status quo that you've both experienced before joining these particular institutions. What makes researchers so inclined to stick to their own area? Is it, is it tribalism? Is it self-interest? Well, so there, there are different aspects to, to this question. First is that most disciplines became disciplines because they were interesting specific issues. And so methodologies were, were created around answering those specific questions. There's a kind of a benefit to scale, which is that there's, there's a set of questions and a set of types of, of methodologies that are, that are available. As a young researcher, it's just much easier to access those tools and start answering those questions because that's what you're trained in during graduate school and so forth. So doing interdisciplinary research is just very costly from the perspective of the young researcher. The second thing is, is that the demand for interdisciplinary research is somewhat reduced in, in academia. And so if you want to make a name for yourself early on and, and get tenure and so forth, you're much better off um, answering questions that are already people kind of agree that these are the, the interesting questions rather than to take on uh, high-risk projects that may or may not land within the discipline. And you get rewarded for publications in papers and uh, with journals and so on. And, and those are, Ingela, the most high-profile ones are, are not likely to be interdisciplinary, are they? Yes and no. So I would like to maybe follow up on what, what Flavio said in the sense that there, I think that there is, on top of this tendency to be very specialized, there is also, I think, a, a, a mechanism of self-perpetuation in the sense that we all rely on peer review, peer judgment. So when we enter as young scholars, we enter a discipline, we are being judged. The, the, whether we succeed or not depends on slightly older peers. <laughs> And they have learned what what it takes to succeed from their predecessors. They're stuck in the mud, you're saying. Yes, <laughs> to some extent. So I think that there is a, a self-perpetuation mechanism whereby the, the, the criteria that were applied and that made me successful, I will apply the same criteria when I judge. And when I, I think that's, that's a kind of a cultural transmission mechanism. There are also very high-profile interdisciplinary outlets, such as Science and Nature, for example. But uh, those are, uh, you know, landing a publication in those journals is extremely rare, right? So I think that there are these several mechanisms. And also to come back to what Flavio said in the beginning about that disciplines are meant to answer specific questions, I think that this has been a process that in the beginning, it was not so necessarily clear that, that there were separate questions. But I think that the degree of specialization has increased over time. And it's a natural tendency. So I, I think maybe speaking about my, my own research and, and actually also yours, uh, Ingela, which, which is basically economics or application of economics. I think economics is unusual in that it, we, we now focus maybe less on specific questions than on the methodology. And so many people are happy to expand uh, the application of economic methodology to other spheres and still be happy to call that economics. So, for example, there's been forays into geography, into uh, legal science or, or law, uh, political science, uh, what have you, sociology. Uh, and economists will be happy enough in some sense to, to uh, you know, consume that kind of literature because they are happy with the methodology. And that, of course, is is what's given rise to this, this notion of economic imperialism, whereby a lot of interdisciplinary work has happened, but 
from economists using their tools to to kind of inform other disciplines. When you started, both of you, uh, going down this route, were there people saying to you, you're mad, don't do it? And has that changed over time? Well, I think that indeed, I think that the hurdles, uh, my very first very first chapter of my dissertation, I already included uh, a little bit of behavioral economics, and it was kind of before the big behavioral economics wave appeared. So uh, I was a bit early indeed, and uh, it has been costly. It takes time. I think that the, 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 the key word here is time. To invest in interdisciplinary research requires uh, more time than to land publications in monodisciplinary projects um, because this communication with other disciplines does require time, essentially. It is a risky proposition to engage in interdisciplinary research, and I think that's still true, but uh, there are institutional answers, and I think we'll talk about that uh, later. Flavio, have you seen the, the, the sand shift, as it were, from a quite a hostile reception for those ideas to more welcoming? I, I wouldn't call it hostility more as indifference. Uh, I, 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 I feel a bit that in my own you know, neck of the woods of, of economic epidemiology, I think in some sense people who did my kind of work have been vindicated uh, during the pandemic because people have realized that, that this was important. And so people have never denied that these were interesting questions. Uh, they may just have disagreed about what was the order of importance of, you know, in the, in the, in the list of, of overall topics. I feel a little bit that my discipline is where climate research have, might have been 20, 30 years ago, where there might also have been a quite a lonely existence, and today everybody agrees that these are uh, important issues. But just to, to come back to your original question, I was not warned by anyone early on that this was a risky proposition, and I, sometimes I kind of wish that, that I had been warned, um, <laughs> because, uh, I mean, I, 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 I'm happy about the work I've done, but I think I vastly underestimated how difficult it was to, to do this kind of work and how, how difficult it is to get people to listen. Well, let's move on to why we need interdisciplinary research. What, what does it do to our ability to tackle complex global challenges? Ingela? Slightly paradoxically, I think that interdisciplinary research is needed in order to enrich the disciplines. So if we think of disciplines as being kind of uh, paths in a forest, then there is a lot of uncharted territory between these paths. And I think that interdisciplinary researchers are kind of scouts that go out and look out, you know, go to alternative paths and they, they look for whatever information methods, data sets, uh, uh, could be useful or could be amenable to bring back and bring they bring back this information to their own discipline and they act as translators. So I think that this communication really enriches, brings uh, new novel questions, novel methods, different ways of thinking about one's own discipline that in the end really serve to enrich the, the disciplines themselves. Sometimes it just turns out that other disciplines have thought very hard about some of the issues that are involved in these new questions and and just ignoring interdisciplinarity means having to reinvent the wheel every single time. So this is something that I found very much in, in my field of economic epidemiology, that epidemiologists are very interested in studying, for example, how do people behave during pandemics, what are the right kind of policies to put in place, and so forth. And it just so happens that many of the issues that are relevant in this context have been answered by economists sometimes a half century ago in, in completely different contexts. Um, and so 
you know, foregoing interdisciplinarity just means not availing yourself of all that hard work and knowledge that, that has already been accumulated. And, and so that's, that's a very, you know, real cost. I mean, let's get down to specifics so that people will kind of understand this. Um, give me, each of you, a concrete example of a, a research project that you, you started on and from the start knew that it was going to be interdisciplinary and how that worked out. Ingela. So I've been involved in, in several interdisciplinary projects. And um, so one of them started because I had done some work using solely economics methods to address a particular question. And it so happened that uh, in a conference, uh, someone uh, approached us to say, you're using something from evolutionary biology that you simply cannot use that way. And we ended up collaborating with this, this person. And so we together then could straighten out the sort of the wrinkles and the question marks that uh, existed in, in, both, in both disciplines. What was the question that you, you raised? So this was a project about uh, the uh, evolutionary foundations of, of morality. So we came from a perspective uh, from from economics, and but we were using evolutionary the evolutionary kind of mathematical models that had been used for a long time in economics, and we were simply not uh, aware because we had not taken the time to look into this other path that had been uh, opened up by evolutionary biologists, right? And so it happened to happen by, by chance that uh, such an eminent evolutionary biologist was listening to one of our presentations and, and alerted us to the fact that, oh, there is uh, much more that can be that can be done here and, and you should look carefully into the definition of, of this particular uh, fitness, actually. You were taking a mathematical approach. Were, were they taking it? A different approach. Exactly. So in this particular case, I mean, there was really it's an overlap of interest in the same questions, but the mathematical models had evolved differently in the different disciplines. So it's, it was then by, by, let's say, marrying these two mathematical modeling worlds that we could together then generate uh, truly novel, uh, truly novel insights. Was it easy to get along? Were, were there kind of moments when you thought, Golly, we're speaking different languages here. It was a very, very interesting first uh, experience in the sense that we were interested in the exact same questions. Our modeling worlds were quite close. The main difficulty was to identify a research question that made scientific sense for both of us so that it generated novel insights into economics, but it also generated novel insights into in evolutionary biology at the same time. So was it all a success? What, what was the outcome? I would say it was a great success. And first of all, we managed in, in finalizing and, and it, we published, I would say, which was published quite well. And it led to several collaborations. So it is a, 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 an, a still ongoing collaboration. I published another paper with this uh, evolutionary biologist uh, this uh, last uh, past summer. And also, I would say that just to add to another dimension of the success, I think, is that the, we felt both, we all felt that there is a real transmission of knowledge. Great. Uh, Flavio, what's your example of a, a project that's worked? So one of my projects was on, on this notion of herd immunity that for most people might have been uh, you know, unknown territory before the pandemic and suddenly became the thing that people focused on. And uh, and I, I remember thinking that there was something odd about this concept in, in the way that it was 
communicated, but also how the literature itself, that is the epidemiology and the public health literature, were using this concept. So the concept, just to remind people, is basically the herd immunity threshold is, is reached when a sufficient number of people in the population uh, have uh, recovered and, and have become immune, and that has implications for the aggregate number of people that will become infected over time. In particular, when this threshold is reached, then fewer people will be infected. Now, it turns out that the public health and epidemiology literature were, were very confused about whether this notion had any importance in terms of policy relevance. That is, should we act on this on this concept or not? And in the event, um, at least for a very brief period, the policy by Boris Johnson's government was to to crack down on on areas of the country where the uh, where the R zero, as it called, or R naught, was larger than one, and to do nothing when when it's lower than one. And and what what I did in my work with with my co-author Bob Rothorn is to rather than focus on this concept, try to take one step back and try to see what are we trying to achieve? What is the overall objective from a a public health authority or a government, uh, what are the costs and what are the benefits of different policies, and then to design what we think would be a sensible policy based on those notions of, of, of what are the objectives and what, are the, what is, is the feasible set of policies. And once we do that, we realize that, that actually this herd immunity threshold is not something that should guide policy per se, is something that comes out of the analysis rather than being the objective of the analysis. So in that case, you, you were the kind of intruders. This, this was public health's domain, and you were coming in with what extra expertise were you bringing? I'm an economist by training, and uh, I, I've, I've specialized in a set of mathematical techniques that are particularly useful for the analysis and evaluation of dynamical systems. So this is called optimal control theory and dynamic programming. And these are basically techniques for trying to figure out what is the best way to achieve some given objective. So in the context of, of public health, uh, the objective may well be something like reducing the number of overall infections or uh, you know, minimizing the number of dead people or, or some kind of combination of economic and social outcomes with, together with health outcomes. So these are all uh, possible objectives. And, and what I bring to the table is a systematic way of actually evaluating policies with this kind of objectives in mind. And did you get a, a warm welcome from the public health people? It's difficult to say. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't say it's a warm welcome. I, I think I-, I just want to maybe tie a note to something that Ingela said earlier, that uh, that she and her co-authors found that they had a common language, which was the modeling. And and so I found myself also that I have a common language with the epidemic modelers because we we understand the same types of dynamical systems, even if our approach is not quite the same. So within the modeling community, I did find considerable interest in engaging, but from from less model-oriented people in public health and from policymakers, I think the um, the welcome was less warm, but but not because of hostility that was inherent to my kind of work, but rather because a, a lack of understanding of what was it that people like me could bring to the table. Well, let's talk about some of the limits to this. I mean, obviously you're you're talking about um, science-based disciplines. Is there room for the humanities here? Are you seeing subjects like the humanities excluded from this approach? Well, 
you know, there is the famous distinction between, you know, the two cultures by, by C.P. Snow, the science versus the humanities. And I think to some extent that is still valid today. I had the, the good fortune of being a, a fellow of, uh, of a you know, interdisciplinary thing here at Cambridge called CRASH, which is social sciences, humanities, and so forth. And, and we would attend each other's seminars. And it became quite clear to me that uh, sociology and anthropology and ethnography and psychology, they were perfectly conversant between themselves. And I was, although I was at least nominally a social scientist, I felt completely out, out of the loop. I, I just didn't speak the same language. Whereas I can easily go to a mathematics seminar on, say, on operations research and understand what is going on. So I think uh, in some sense, the language that we use and the methodologies that we use will be uh, a very important determinant for whether we can talk to people. Having said that, uh, there are many fields within uh, traditional social sciences where uh, a scientist could, could make inroads. For example, sociology can certainly be informed by network theory or mathematics in, in that sense. There's also mathematical psychology, which again, could easily talk to people that are from the more quantitative side of the spectrum. So, so I think uh, it's not impossible, but it's clearly more difficult than it is within kind of the methodological clusters like modeling type disciplines and and, and less modelling-focused disciplines. Ingela, the, the humanities and the sciences mixing, not possible? I wouldn't say it's impossible, but I would uh, tend to agree with Flavio that uh, it uh, it is easier for um, researchers using quantitative methods to communicate because it's it's all about sort of the, you know building theories, numbers, statistics. So there there is a common language, there is a common set of methodologies. But in terms of for humanities, I think that if we think about the, a fairly popular research team uh, theme nowadays, uh, narratives. All right, so a lot of economists, political scientists take a lot of interest in, in the, the importance and the role that narratives play in, in society today. And certainly, uh, I think that those researchers can very well benefit from involving some specialist in literature, history. However, it's not so clear to me what the researcher in, so the, the corresponding specialist in, in literature, for example, would gain from such, uh, from such uh, a collaboration. Well, we had an episode of Crossing Channels called Why Are Stories Important for Society? Featuring professors Sarah Dillon and Manavir Singh on this very topic. So why not scroll down the feed and listen to that one once you're done here? Is there an instinctive slight distrust by scientists of the humanities and vice versa? I, I think there might be some of that, but I think it should also not underestimate the distrust there is between quantitative disciplines. I mean, I, I met many physicists who, who scoff at, at, at economists uh, and, and the other way around. I mean, the many physicists have tried their hand at economics and economists are just shaking their head because surely it might be mathematically sophisticated, but it seems... Uh, often to to lack some of the central ingredients that economists would look for, like like behavior and incentives and so on. So I think there is um, there's plenty of mistrust going around in all directions. But one thing also I think I should I should point out. So there's this often 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 said that uh, that economists they 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 think that every topic that they they start looking at is virgin territory and they that they uh, don't look up what other disciplines have looked at so for example it's often said that the sociologists have looked at these issues way way before the economists and the economists are are not you know paying their dues in in terms of recognizing this intellectual debt and i think that's probably fair to say that 
But it's also true that economists do not necessarily consider an answer, a, a question answered unless it's done with the tools that they would recognize as being the appropriate tools. So if somebody has written in a different discipline using completely different tools, uh, they will still think that this is an open problem. And that might explain why they're not properly recognizing what is going on in other disciplines, even though the topics are very, very related. Well, let's move on to the, the challenge of implementing interdisciplinary research in practice. So there's a study published in Nature which suggested that this kind of research is less likely to be funded than discipline-based research. Is the peer review process the main challenge to conducting interdisciplinary research? Yes, uh, I, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, it's very difficult uh, to, to get published in, in, in non-interdisciplinary journals. So, for example, over the years, I've, I've very often gotten uh, rejection letters from editors saying, we really like your work, but perhaps you should send it to an epidemiology journal rather than, than our journal. Uh, and very recently, I, I've gotten papers rejected simply because the editor could not find adequate referees. So th the problem is that when you get referees that are not themselves interdisciplinary, uh, they will use a different, uh, you know, benchmark or a different yardstick than than other uh, than than really is appropriate for an interdisciplinary project. And so you could have, for example, an epidemiologist saying, "I don't understand all this economic stuff. This makes no sense to me. Uh, this is not how I would like research to be done." And on the other hand, you have maybe an economist who's not well versed in in the interdisciplinary work saying, "Also, this looks strange. This is not the kind of economics I'm used to doing." And so you end up in an in an un, unhappy middle ground where nobody really wants to take ownership uh, of 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 doing of doing the uh, the vetting of of this research. Ingela, does that ring any bells for you? Uh, yes, for monodisciplinary juries, uh, it's really a numbers issue, as Flavio was mentioning. Uh, for any given truly interdisciplinary project, it would be typically be very few people who are knowledgeable about the value of that particular research. And so in a monodisciplinary jury, it will typically not find anyone who, who can really evaluate the value of, of, uh, of, of the proposal. And on the other hand, uh, proposals that are evaluated by um, multidisciplinary juries uh, well, there is the risk there that uh, it, the pro proposal would not be deemed enough interdisciplinary. So I have actually experienced that myself. Uh, there was uh, a few years ago, we submitted a, a large uh, a proposal and we had a, a three or four disciplines uh, involved, if I remember correctly. And uh, one of the key uh, comments that we got was, well, why did you not include also this fifth discipline? Right. So I think that uh, there is a conundrum there and it's it's just striking the right balance is is key. Well, let's end by looking to the future and asking, is this a, a kind of movement whose time has come? Uh, and if so, what 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 is needed to make interdisciplinary research much more attractive, much better funded and so on? Flavia, any thoughts? So uh, I, I, I see increasingly universities mentioning interdisciplinarity as something that, that is valued. Uh, now, I have not seen much evidence that, that the universities put their money where their mouths are, uh, as it were, uh, and follow up on those things. I think there has been some notable successes of interdisciplinarity that we don't think of today as interdisciplinary because they've been in absorbed into the discipline. So for many of them I mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, looking at the family unit uh, as, as an economic unit and figuring out what happens within and, within and between families. This is something that is now mainstream economics. At some point, it was a revolutionary idea. Uh, similarly, uh, there's been a revolution of behavioral and experimental economics that now is just part of economics. But at the time, it was certainly something that came from outside. So it's not that, that the discipline is completely closed. It's just that it takes a lot of time. Um, now, how to foster more of that in the, in the future? Well, it's, it's a matter of, of aligning incentives with the objectives you're trying to, to achieve. You, you get what you pay for. And so if, if journal editors start becoming more broad-minded about what they think is important research, if funding bodies uh, put more money for that kind of projects, then little by little, that's exactly where the disciplines are going to move. So, you know, academia, like all other, you know, all organizations or, or all social structures, they, they react to incentives. Ingela, are you winning, as it were? Are you and Flavio winning? Oh, yes, I definitely think that there is a bright future for interdisciplinary research. I'm, I'm, I'm convinced of that. So I would like to say a few, a few things. So first of all, I strongly believe in bottom-up approaches. That's uh, what I see have, has worked. I mean, I've over my career have seen many universities indeed trying to get researchers to engage in more interdisciplinary research. But so top-down approaches rarely work unless the incentives are put into place. And I think that universities are not particularly um, good at putting pressure on the departments to change their evaluation procedures. So any researcher who is um, up for promotion or tenure in a monodisciplinary department will face this constraint that that what really counts uh, are publications within the journals that are recognized by that discipline. And universities could put more, I think, pressure on departments themselves to actually change these evaluation criteria to foster interdisciplinary research. Time is a central ingredient and repeated interactions. So putting in place seminar series, conference funding, and making sure that researchers have the time to engage in conversations, that's really a key factor. And at IEST, that is really what we, what we do. So we have uh, young researchers from several disciplines meeting on a regular basis and being exposed week after week after week. That is really what, what works. Another factor is risk. So it's very risky to engage in interdisciplinary research. And one of the, uh, we were talking earlier about access to funding. And the way that I, I see that funding is structured right now is that there are very big, uh, big grants. Okay, so for example, the Synergy Grant at the ERC level. So to set up such a huge product, it's a, it's a humongous investment that is necessary, that is required, and with potentially very low return. And so I believe that a funding agencies should uh, actually roll out a larger number of small grants. So to, to, to give an incentive to people to try out uh, the path towards more interdisciplinary research without th that they, they wouldn't have to feel that they need to spend six months or one year uh, of, their, of their career to, to prepare a huge uh, grant proposal, but instead uh, really nudge uh, nudge through a larger number of smaller grants. I think that would be a, a good thing to do. 
universities and other institutions can also set up uh, pri prizes so, so as to reduce the stigma and give a signal that the institution values this kind of research. So as a final note, I would like to say that I strongly believe that both institutions and individuals who engage in interdisciplinary research will see that they will be rewarded. At the individual level, it's exceedingly stimulating and fun to actually communicate and, and engage in dialogue with people from other disciplines. You'll discover a whole lot of, of very interesting methods, questions. And so I think that uh, there are high rewards to, to engage in, in interdisciplinary research in spite of the challenges. Well, that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks to Ingela Alger from the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse and Flavio Tuxford from the Bennett Institute. Let us know what you think of this latest episode of Season 3 of Crossing Channels. You can contact us via Twitter, as I still insist on calling it. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse is IAS Toulouse. And I am Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this episode, then do listen to our other Crossing Channels editions, notably our last one on the challenges of short-termism in government. And please join us next month for the next edition, where we will be looking at health tech. <laughs>